Ask yourself, what does it really mean to be free? Are you truly free if you are unable to go to a doctor when you are sick or face financial bankruptcy when you leave the hospital? Are you truly free if you cannot afford the prescription drugs you need in order to stay alive? Are you truly free when you spend half of your limited income on housing and are forced to borrow money from a payday lender at 200% interest rates? Are you truly free if you are 70 years old and forced to work because you lack a pension or enough money to retire? Are you truly free if you are unable to go to a college or a trade school because your family lacks the income? Are you truly free if you are forced to work 60 or 80 hours a week because you cannot find the job that pays you a living wage? Are you truly free if you are a mother with a newborn baby, but you are forced to go back to work immediately after the birth of that child because you lack paid family leave? Are you truly free if you are a small business owner or a family farmer who is driven out of business by the monopolistic practices of big business? Are you truly free if you are a veteran who has put his or her life on the line to defend this country and tonight will be sleeping out on the streets? To me, the answer to those questions in the wealthiest nation on earth is no. Under those conditions, you are not truly free. While the Bill of Rights protects us from the tyranny of an oppressive government, many in the establishment would like the American people to submit to the tyranny of oligarchs, multinational corporations, Wall Street banks, and billionaires. It is time, and in fact, time long overdue, for the American people to stand up and fight for their right to freedom, human dignity, and security. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On today's episode, I speak to Jacob Fawcett, a.k.a. Carl Bayer, as he's known on the internets. Carl is a writer for places like Jacobin, who focuses on the left, linguistics, and international affairs. And he talks to me about a paper he just wrote about the Global Green New Deal, which was published by the People's Policy Project, which was founded by friend of the show, Matt Grunick. Carl also talks to me about the anti-Bernie media bias during this episode. Make sure that you go to FAIR, that's Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR.org, because I'll have a piece up there Monday about that issue. And Carl talks to me about a piece he wrote at his own website called Bernie Sanders Should Obviously Campaign as a Socialist. So, yeah, let's start with this paper, shall we? Yeah. Okay, great. So you've written a paper, and it's been embargoed until June 18th, so we're bringing it to you hot off of the unembargoed presses, uh, if you'll allow that mixed metaphor. Um, And it is about the Green New Deal. It's called the Global Green New Deal. And it's very um, short, which is nice, because people like policy that they can read um, without having to dedicate, like, an entire... 
I don't know how long does it usually take to dedicate to read a policy paper. A much longer time than this does. Yeah, this is. That's my take. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is deliberate. You're the uh, the Harrods Inn of um, policy papers, if you in a way, right? The People's Policy Project. You want it to be intelligible, readable for working people. I think Matt Brunig would be the uh, Howard's in here. I'm just random guy contributing to the project. There's no angles and marks to the to Howard's in, right? There's no. Uh... No, no. He, he he's he's a lone ranger there. I, I'm just sort of you know this is uh, being published by the People's Policy Project, which is um, DC's only sort of small donor funded think tank. Um, and so they, they were, I, I wrote this paper, but they graciously published it and, you know, they have, um, they, they put it in a nice shiny PDF and they do what they can to distribute it. Um, so anyway, yeah, you know, sort of speaking on behalf of PPP here. Um, so it's very short because our argument is very simple. Basically, all we want is for the United States to fund international green development at levels uh, commensurate with what the science says and what the research says is needed. Um, there's a whole field that sort of models out what we would need to do all over the world if we want to prevent and mitigate climate change. Um, and it's pretty expensive. And the United States currently is not investing anywhere near what it needs to be uh, to carry its burden. So what we've called for here is we have called for the United States to invest $680 billion every year to the fight against climate change. And this money would go to the UN's Green Climate Fund. Uh, we would also uh, use this money to uh, negotiate uh, proportional amounts from the rest of the OECD nations. Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Yeah, it's just it's just the global north. Basically, these are all these are all wealthy, like Western European nations. Um, so uh, basically what you want to do here is you want to get wealthy nations to pay their share of uh, green development um, and to help out the global south, which can't afford it. And the most estimates say we need about two trillion dollars a year to do this. So in the OECD, the United States has about a third of the GDP of all of those nations. So we just said, okay, let's say for now that the U.S. should be paying a third of uh, this two trillion, which comes to about six hundred eighty billion a year. So math is pretty simple. Um, we then propose a couple of different ways to fund it, uh, policy mechanisms, because the other trick here is you want to avoid a situation where Republicans stop funding it or cut off funding mm -hmm. like Donald Trump has done. Uh, we already had an agreement in place uh, where we were going to provide funding over the years. And in 2017, Donald Trump announced when they pulled out of the Paris Accords that he was also not going to give money to the Green Climate Fund anymore. So we need to avoid that um, moving forward. And so we've published, we have, it gets a little technical, but basically we have three different funding approaches that the United States could use to um, 
the best the best way I can explain it is just imagine handing the UN a bunch of cash. Wow. So you really are calling for handouts. Wow. <laughs> wow, Carl. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, you know, Donald Trump. When, when Donald yeah. Trump said uh, that we were pulling out of the Green Climate Fund, these payments, he was openly complaining. He said this is redistribution. The agreement is a massive redistribution of United States wealth to other countries. Um, he said giving billions and billions to the rest of the world. Billions and billions and billions of dollars. And you know what? He's right. And that's great, and we should do that. But you know what else? It's it's redistributive. Um, it's giving uh, billions and billions to literally the world, the rest of the world, as in to the survival of the world. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's obviously in our interest. I mean, we absolutely have to do this. There's no way around it. Uh, we if if we want to survive, uh, we need this international development. This isn't just me saying this. Like this is more or less the policy consensus. If you look at just about anyone in academia or, um, you know, major organizations that try to figure out how much we need to be giving, it's in the two trillion a year range. Um, so some uh, some estimates are actually quite higher and most of the estimates uh, grow over the years. So, um, for example, 100 years from now, uh, we should be paying around six trillion dollars, uh, which is you know it, it 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 climbs and climbs. But the other thing to bear in mind here is that if we don't make this investment now, it gets even more expensive moving forward. So you want to front load the yeah, work, right? Yeah, yeah. So you like like my uh, using all this garbage? <laughs> yeah. So. So, uh, you know, the bottom line here is our ask is very simple. Um, our proposals for how to do this are very simple. And the only real question is if uh, we're actually going to do it or not. If, if we're going to decide, yeah, we actually are serious about fighting climate change. And we aren't going to just do this as a domestic program. Because if you just do this domestically, if you just green the United States, that doesn't solve the problem. Most of the carbon emissions now and in the future are coming from the developing world. So we have to fix that. So let's say you're like a, um, uh, a Donald Trumpian or a, a you know, a climate denier, total isolationist, climate denier. Yeah, that too. Let's say, or I mean, or let's break it down, actually. Let's say you're not a climate denier, but you are a, a super nationalist, isolationist. You're like, I don't care. Let them fig figure that well, out. Well, in that case, you are a climate denier because... Right, because of the way... Yes, I was just trying yeah, to tell you. Yeah, yeah. You, right. I yeah. mean, there's... You know, number one, you're a climate denier here if you deny climate change is taking place. You're a climate denier if you think that you, the United States can solve this on its own. And you're a climate denier if you think that we can do this cheaply because we can't. Yeah, this right. is this is going to be a very big investment. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, ordinary Americans are going to have to be making big sacrifices to fund this, at least. Um, there are all kinds of different ways if you if you feel the need to pay for this as opposed to say just printing money or you know uh, there are all kinds of ways that you could hypothetically pay for this but it, I do not 
see any need whatsoever for doing things like raising taxes on the poor, the middle class, right. or defunding social programs or anything like that. So you break it down into three different different potential mm-hmm. ways. We have three approaches. The first approach is basically like handing the UN cash, okay? Once you do that, and what we say here is that we're going to give them a lot at first, like up front. So we're actually, we would actually give them like 10.8 trillion up front. And um, that's theirs moving forward. You can't take it back. If we give all of this money to the UN, uh, Donald Trump can't come in at some time in the future and say, hey, we want it back. Um, our second approach is more like writing an IOU or writing a check. Um, the U.S. is legally a block. It can't just default on its debt obligations. I don't know if you remember the whole debt ceiling controversy years ago under Obama, but that was um, it, it's the same kind of thing. We are constitutionally required to pay our debts. So that's the essential mechanism of how number two works is we basically um, – it, it, we do this through these special treasury bonds, but that's sort of the legal logic to it. And the last approach that we propose um, is just mandatory spending. So the key to under um, here, the way to understand the advantage of mandatory spending is right now, if we want to invest money into the Green Climate Fund, uh, the president either has to, you know, ask for it in the budget or Congress has to put it in, or the president has to subsequently sort of try to uh, dig up that money from whatever budget has been approved. So, for example, Obama promised like $3 billion, um during the Paris Accords. And uh, he ended up giving less than that. And when he did give less than that, he took some of it out of like the State Department's budget, for example. So they right now, the way that we're funding this stuff is you have to affirmatively look for the money every single time you want to give them money. Is that like affirmative consent for money? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I can. Yeah. I can, yeah. So, <laughs> that was me, not Carl making that joke. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get in trouble anyway. Yeah. So, show me the money. Affirmatively, show me the money. Show me the money. So, if uh, if uh, Jerry Jerry what you call it had been made. Jerry Maguire. Maguire, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You complete me. So, with mandatory spending, uh, it's like Social Security or um, you know any other program like that that automatically gets funded. Uh, you don't have to ask for it every time. It just gets funded moving forward. And to stop that, Congress would actually have to pass a law saying, okay, we aren't going to automatically fund this anymore. Those are the three approaches that uh, you can take to funding. They all have their advantages and disadvantages. So, for example, the first one is kind of my favorite because there's, as far as I can tell, there's absolutely no way uh, for any kind of future administration to take that back once you give the money. But 
The problem is suddenly you've dumped all of this, you know, trillions of dollars into the market that has weird market effects like on interest rates and things like that. And so that's why you might not want to do that. Um, the <clears throat> second option, it's hard to beat because it would basically cause a constitutional crisis if you tried to say, ah, we're not going to pay all this money we owe. So in theory, you can imagine uh, a GOP just deciding, okay, we're going to make a constitutional crisis about this, but it's probably not going to happen. Third one is the easiest way to stop because really all you have to do is pass a law, but that's still harder than right now. And the point of all of this is you have to provide uh, funding to the international community that is not just adequate, but it's also reliable. So they have to know that this money is going to come in. Because that'll affect yeah, their... it affects it affects planning. It, it uh, the yeah. um, you know people from the Green Climate Fund have complained they they mostly seem to keep their mouth shut, but they have complained about this a little, how the U.S. just suddenly deciding we're not going to pay our fair share uh, has disrupted a lot of their budget budgeting and a lot of their plans and that kind of thing. So we have to avoid situations like that. And how does this relate to the, the Green New Deal that Ocasio is putting forward, which of course yeah, you mentioned? Yeah, so um, it, it, the Green New Deal legislation that they've passed does mention in passing, it, it has a short section where they talk about um, the international problem a little bit, and they talk about different ideas that they have for uh, dealing with this. So, for example, they talk about like exporting jobs and exporting technology and things like that as ways to deal with climate change. And that's all to the U.S.'s benefit. It does also mention funding. It says that it basically says that we do need to be funding international development. So that's where we get our foot in the door here. We say, OK, well, the legislation does talk about funding how much and how are you going to do it? So we are answering those two questions. And what made you come up with this idea? Like, how do you sit down and, and, and think about I've, it? I've, so I have been writing about this for a long time, um, at least since 2015. Um, I've been aware that the amount of funding that the United States is providing and is thinking about providing is not anywhere near what we need to be giving. So this has been on my mind for a long time. And, you know, like if you've, you, you may have, I've written about it a lot and I've complained about it on Twitter all the time and that kind of thing. And so finally, I just um, decided, okay, well, I, I want to put a sort of formal policy proposal out there um, and at least, you know, try to start a conversation about this, try to get people interested in the problem. And have you done this with other things? Because I, I find you're interesting because you are a kind of, um, you kind of occupy a couple different <laughs> lanes. Yeah. Well, 
Um, you're like a Sovietist, Sovietologist. Uh, what what is it? You're I have uh, a, you you have well, some, I studied yeah. so I I studied Russian in college, and I've lived in both Moscow and Kiev, so I have a bit of a background there, and I study you know. So I I, I actually studied literature in college, um, but you had to when I was doing I was focusing on Russian literature, and you had to take. Uh, history classes along with that uh, as well. So that's sort of where I got some of my background for that. Um, but in in this case, I have um, a bit of, most, mostly I'm used to uh, dealing with like treaty questions and sort of international law issues and things like that, just because of some of um, my policy background and some of my um, journalism background, I'm familiar with these topics. So I sort of have a vague idea, or I've always had a vague idea of how this would have to work in terms of working with the UN or working with international institutions. And uh, it seems clear to me that the UN is the vehicle that you want to use for this. So, you know, right now the the other thing that sets our proposal apart from the way that other people talk about uh, funding green international development is it, it's usually proposed that this should be coming from the private sector. Uh, okay, good. Now we're getting to something we can criticize. <laughs> yeah. I feel more comfortable, so, yeah. And the, the idea is usually that we should be um, like – They'll, they'll talk about both, but in a lot of papers, they say, okay, well, we need to find ways to incentivize businesses to take a stake in this and to develop green technology or to, you know, go around the world and build dams or, or sell solar cells or, yeah, you know, all kinds of different um, things that you can do to mitigate climate change. And they're kind of hoping that that will solve the problem. And our approach here is that you can't take it for granted that that will solve the problem. We need to um, proceed on the assumption that the private sector has not dealt with this, has not fixed it, and that the state needs to take the lead on this. And then you know what? If the private sector wants to chip in and wants to, you know, uh, do some philanthropy and give out some solar cells or whatever, that's fine. They can do whatever they want, but we aren't going to rely on them. What, what kind of pushback does this type of thinking get from and from where? So I'm, I'm anticipating it, uh, right. some yeah. response yeah. from a couple of different angles. From the right, the response is just going to be, oh, we can rely on markets and we can rely on private philanthropy and we can't afford to spend this much money. It's going to be that kind of thing. Um, from the left, I think there will probably be some push. So one issue with this uh, proposal is that the the green climate fund which operates from the un so what they do is they sort of give out grants and loans and they give it to different kinds of applicants so sometimes they give them to sort of like national bodies other times they do give them to i believe their word is like accredited uh some it's accredited something but basically it, businesses can apply for some of this money um, 
and I think uh, I think that's a problem. I also don't like the idea of this money going to the Green Climate Fund and then it being uh, loaned to the developing world and us charging interest and doing stuff like that. Like we have no business doing that. So my hope would be that if we actually moved forward on this, that as part of the negotiation process, we would be putting some conditions on this, like, hey, this money is uh, grants. This should not be used for loans, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah, I, you know, and from the left, you also just get the usual objections. Well, this doesn't solve every single different right. problem related to climate change, which right. fair enough. You know, it's it's just a couple of pages long. It's not a big proposal. We're not pretending to solve all of these different problems we are just trying to solve one big problem which is the funding you're like acting like an accountant to the green new deal <laughs> yeah well uh, i mean i i've been sort of gaming out how this needs to proceed for a long time and it, the thing the other thing is it's very important i think to up front get this fight out of the way and say okay either we're going to fund this or we aren't because if we decide to get lost in a lot of different questions like okay how are we going to pay for it or where's the money going to go or all that then we're never going to solve the big one whereas if we solve the big question of okay are we going to actually spend this money then everything else we can work out later and it will be easier right you're a writer journalist you're interested in climate change. You're interested in political theory. Um, just, well, I mean, you're kind of a wonk, <laughs> but you're also into language. I feel like wonk people and language people don't usually overlap a, that much. I'm just a blogger. That's blogger. Okay, that's, that's all. Yeah. I, I'm. I'm a. Were you, were you like good at both sections on your SATs? Like equally? No, good? my. Uh, I, I'm actually terrible with math. Um, me too, but I thought you'd be good at it. I'm I'm terrible with oh, math, but I'm good at Excel, so I don't have to think too hard about it. Oh, so you're like an Einstein type. Well, I'm not saying you're not calling, but he hated arithmetic, but he was good yeah, at. I mean, math or you're not. Good I mean, yeah, I mean the the other thing is like the kind of stuff I do with polling on and all that when I'm doing math stuff is always it's actually like really really simple and it's kind of shocking that I don't see more journalists do this i think a lot of journalists just don't know where to get the data or maybe i well i don't know i think a lot of them also just find it boring but i'm never i'm never doing anything like that uh sort of mathematically complicated what uh what can you tell us about polls right now do you mean with the democrat primaries Um, yeah well i guess it, it so far it's playing out Pretty much. I I read a Jacobin article a while back um, talking about how my impression is this is kind of clearly going to be a Biden front runner race. And there there's a lot of talk at the time about how he was just going to completely collapse as soon as he entered into the race. I've never thought that for a minute. Um, He's like he's a different kind of candidate now than he was in the previous two times that he ran. He's a former vice Mm -hmm. president now. His name recognition is much higher. It's a different field than it was all of those other times. So I, I think that he's the front runner. And unless anything really dramatic happens, he's going to stay the front runner. Um, 
but you know bernie is so the the dynamic through this race is that bernie is sitting there in second he's you have warren sort of making a little surge right now i don't know how long that will last um but the general state of the race from my perspective is that bernie is running in second and Everybody, everybody who doesn't like Bernie but doesn't like Biden either is kind of faced with a problem where they know mm-hmm. that if they bring Biden down, then suddenly Bernie is a viable candidate. Then suddenly mm-hmm. he can challenge for the nomination. Whereas if they don't bring Biden down, then Bernie can't – I don't think he can win if it, just as it is. Um, Mm -hmm. so if they don't bring Biden down, then I think, uh, you know, Biden just kissed the nomination. I think a lot of people don't want, uh, like seriously don't want Biden to win either. So you see, um, you see a lot of uh, sort of moderate liberals, I would say, trying to figure out how they want to negotiate this dynamic and trying to decide like you see this weird sort of passive aggression going out where they'll say okay well we should compete for the nomination but not attack each other the way that works out in practice is you have candidates like um you know harris and booker and um beto who are not really going on offense against biden even though they absolutely need to if they're gonna stand chance so they aren't really trying to win um and why is that do you think uh, because they are afraid of because they they don't like biden but they hate bernie more than they hate biden i feel like almost everyone who's not a bernie person who hates so every every non everyone who dislikes biden who isn't a Bernie mm-hmm. person. This is totally anecdotal. Mm-hmm. But I feel like they all hate Bernie more. Um. Okay, so, yeah, people... Sorry. Yeah, yeah, me, no, no, no. I, are, I follow what you're saying here. So you're, yeah. you're saying that people who... Uh, if, if you look at the rest of the field and you look at who their second choice and third choices are, it's always... It's usually Biden as the second choice. It's almost always. So... Um, you do have a constituency of sort of never Sanders people out there. Right. I don't think, I I think their numbers are being overstated. They're Mm -hmm. big enough to cause us a problem and they're certainly loud. Um, But the real question here is just whether, whether the rest of the candidates are going to go on offense enough to bring Biden down or if they're going to sort of passively let the primaries play out, in which case he's going to coast a victory. I don't really, I, I don't have much of a theory on why they aren't on the offense more yet. I don't really understand that. Um, well, maybe because they don't like Bernie more than they don't like. I Biden. don't. It, it's very odd you for me so? to imagine like Kamala Harris deciding, yeah, I'm going to run for president, and then this is going to be the next two years of my life. But I also am not going to run hard enough to actually try to win. Like that's that seems mm. a weird uh, calculation. You know, there is there is a phenomenon since you brought up. Um, my sort of Russianist background. 
There is a yeah. phenomena in former Soviet states where you will have like, you know, Putin's United Russia Party, where they will run basically puppet candidates. Um, and the idea is to sort of split the vote. So like you'll have kind of this is happening in Ukraine, too. You'll have basically sort of a communist party light type thing. And they are only there to split off votes to uh, weaken the second place you know, candidates. Um, uh. I'm not saying that that's what's happening here in the U.S., but it is kind of funny because there is a kind of similar role being played where obviously if the field were a lot smaller, um, you know, people like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren would have a much cleaner shot at Biden. Ah, uh, right, yeah. Okay, here's what we know. We know that Bernie has been polling pretty strong for a while now. Okay, but here's the, that's the thing. I mean, you've noticed this, right? It's like the obsession with, can you do a poll about the, the how misleading the media has been about how Bernie's polling? Uh, do you mean write a post about it? Well, I've, I've sure, but I was kidding. I was kidding somewhat. But do a poll about like, regardless of where they are, they say the same thing about him, no matter what Bernie's pulling yeah. at. Yeah, it is. He's always in danger. Like the words that that Tiffany, that's whoops, that Sydney Ember. That's funny. I was going to say Tiffany Ember Thiessen. That's really funny from um, Saved by the Bell. This is all happening so fast. But the 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 words that um, Sydney Ember uses are like, it's a test, it's the latest hurdle, the latest challenge, whether he'll be able to, it's unclear if. I mean, I've never seen people write so much about someone struggling when they're the front runner, which he was the entire time he was yeah. in the race and Biden wasn't. But they never framed him that way. It, and they, when he stopped being the front runner, that's when Ember wrote a piece, the headline of which was... um. Bernie Sanders no longer the front runner brings campaign home to Vermont, but that's when they called him that when he wasn't the front runner anymore. I mean, it's such a concerted. Effort. It's very yeah. It's it's hard to litigate this stuff because the fact yeah. is, so there are uh, there are a couple facts here, which is that Bernie did start off polling very high. Like certainly, as you always right. do, you get a bump when you first announce usually. Um, and then he benefited from Biden not announcing yet for a while. So he, you know, he is a front runner for a while. And even then, uh, very briefly after Biden announced, he, he was the front runner in a couple of polls. Um, so there has been a phenomena where Bernie started off very strong and then the other candidates got more competitive. Um, and so his position isn't as strong as it used to be. Now that said, you, ha you well, you you absolutely have had a a lot of spin going on. Um, yeah, I I would say like very inconsistent ways of talking about. Yeah, for example, the game you'll see played a lot is with name recognition. If um, mm -hmm. certain polls are benefiting Sanders, uh, then you'll say, right. oh, well, it's because everybody knows who he is and they don't know it, the other people. Um, but you'll it, there have been a couple of times, and I've written about this on my site, where um, the name recognition issue would have actually worked the other way for Sanders. And if they had acknowledged it, then it would have made him look better or think back what do you mean? Sorry. Can okay, you well, think, think about this, for example. In 2016, um, it, it was pretty clear that Bernie's major challenge with black voters was name recognition. 
Um, uh-huh. People and it wasn't just black voters. People didn't know who he was in general. But if you look at the way that his name recognition grew among black voters, his favorability grew, and his uh, polling numbers against Clinton also grew. They all grew mm-hmm. at pretty much the exact same rate. So it was pretty clear that that was correlated. But you never really saw in the media any kind of talk about that. Like you never really saw very mm-hmm. much talk about, okay, yeah, it's the name recognition that's holding him back in a lot of cases. Oh, I yeah. see. Right, right, right. I see it, what you're saying. Right. So it's lack of name recognition is holding him back. They don't say that. But when he's doing well because of name recognition, yeah. they dismiss his doing and well and attribute it to name recognition as if that doesn't count or something yeah, it's or kind irrelevant of, or will like go away. Like it's kind of silly. Like name recognition is um, – so, for example, it, again, in 2016, they would say he had problems with black voters because they hated right. his agenda and all that. And then yeah. if you look at it, oh, well, it's not really necessarily because they hate his agenda. It's because they don't know him just like nobody knows him. Right. It, it, and, and so th- in cases like that, it makes sense to talk about name recognition. But if you're talking right. about whether he's just winning or losing, then it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter if his numbers are coming from name recognition or what. Like all that matters is right. his polling. Right. So uh, it's yeah. it's entirely possible that we will be getting into like the early primary states and both Biden and Bernie will still be riding on some name recognition advantages. Right. And that doesn't mean that goes away. Yeah, people can't say, "Oh, well, yeah. they they don't get Iowa because the, the Right. Yeah. So, um what I've been seeing in the polls is you just have different uh standards about like what variables you account for you're like sometimes okay well name recognition matters other times like uh but it doesn't matter anymore um i've seen them move around with uh favorability polling a lot of times uh they asked voters uh what's your impression of sanders favorable or unfavorable Sometimes they'll ask, okay, what's your impression? Is it very favorable? Is it favorable, Mm -hmm. uh, very unfavorable, or just unfavorable? And they have Mm -hmm. four choices. So if if, um, his overall favorability ratings look good, then sometimes they will ignore that completely and look for somebody beating him with just very favorable. They did that with mm-hmm. uh, Elizabeth Warren a couple weeks ago where Bernie was actually leading her in overall favorables, but all of the sort of blue check pundits were saying, oh, but she's leading in very favorables, which was a very right. odd point to make because Sanders uh, is, has been leading in enthusiasm for months right. on end, and you don't see that. You actually had a couple people pretending like enthusiasm had dropped since 2016, and it yeah. hadn't. Well, that's what's, that's what's so incredibly frustrating is that it seems like the media spends a lot of time saying he can't do well or he's not mm-hmm. doing well, and then – you hear people, not all of whom are like cynical, but they just watch the media and they hear say, people saying Sanders is losing it. He's, he's you know, he's behind. He's um, he's just not that likable or something. And the black, and black voters just don't like him. And then people, of course, internalize that. I guess like if it's any consolation, a thing to always remember is people just don't 
watch the news and people just aren't engaged in the primaries like especially this early they don't care uh, okay so we don't have to to show that they're uh, lying you know, well I, I mean you so you can you can and the, it does i think it does end up having an effect primary, ultimately yeah what about the New York Times? Um, you know, honestly, like my so the things that I've been focusing on are is just polling and the way that they are right. um, representing numbers. Uh, the New York Times doesn't do that much of that right now. Um, it, but do they influence? Aren't New York Times readers like big in the primary? I think. I really don't think that what happens right now will end up having that much of a long-term effect. It's really like, it's hard to grasp this because we are in a, we are a very unusual demographic. You know, we are like super high politically engaged, like, you know, mm -hmm. be sort of news junkies. And I'm just saying that about you because I know that you are too. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, but most of the population does not interact uh, with elections the way that we do. Most of them, they generally aren't paying any attention to it until like right before, like right before they're going into the voting booth. Um, and, and honestly, you, there's only so much to be learned. Like we aren't really getting much new information right now about the candidates. Like, a lot of it is just sort of the dumb emotional roller coaster of week to week polling fluctuations and then people making a big deal about them and misrepresenting them and all of that. They're just trying to get clicks and to sell newspapers. Like that's what they, that's, yeah. it's, I, and and I'm you know I'm a hundred percent with you. Anybody who sees me like right. I I get so no, mad know, about yeah. this kind of stuff just because it's like really sort of deeply dishonest and right. But I feel like it has to be creeping into a general like even if it's not just Bernie specific or primary specific. I mean, all the framing of it is so like. I think that one way like one way that this stuff does end up mattering a bit in primaries is early on like you have a, a large pool of people who are all competing for the same donations um, mm -hmm. and trying to prove right. that they're viable candidates and a lot of that donations are it, it are coming from people like us right now um, right. and uh -huh. so if say if the thing is Bernie is doing fine with fundraising he's not going to have a problem with that and so he is going to be able to ride out any of these, you know, polling fluctuations and all that perfectly fine until the primaries. If you're a lower tier candidate who isn't polling as well, like, say, Mike Gravel, uh, and, mm -hmm. and you start. He's my he's my second. Actually, I keep saying uh, uh, Warren is. No, he's my second. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I campaigned with for him in the primaries in 2008. Uh, yeah, wow. before he, I'm a, I'm a old school Gravel guy. Um, did you meet him? I did. Very no, I did not meet him. I had a, um, I, I did go to his office once. And he, he had this very small office just outside of DC, but he wasn't there. Um, okay. And this was also, um, it, this was before he dropped out and then Obama took over. And so obviously like, well, no, he didn't drop out. I think he moved over to 
uh, the libertarian ticket actually competing for that. And I did not follow in there. I'm not going to do that. But anyway, I was saying, if you are a candidate who is struggling a little with fundraising or with polling, um, then yeah, some of this early like bad press and all of that can end up hurting you because you might just have to close your campaign early. You might not be able to get the funding. You donors right. won't be impressed, especially like big ticket donors. I, I would say like it, it certainly with Sanders and with Biden, like they could almost not do anything until uh, a couple of months before the primaries. Like you had a Schultz the other day come out and say, hey, we're going on hiatus for the summer. Yeah, oh, wow. that was. Okay. So, so we should just keep our we should just stick stay. Uh, I save up our energy. I would save up your emotional energy just because it's going to drive yeah. you crazy if you can. Right. Like it's it, it, yeah. it certainly it, it frustrates me. Um, and it's very I'm not even sure where it comes from because it's not coming from a place of I'm worried about how Bernie is doing. I think he's going to do fine. It's I just get really, really mad when I see journalists. Yeah, when I see journalists being yeah. dishonest and it, just the way that they're they have these giant corporate platforms um, yeah. and they kind of have a, a responsibility to be using these ethically, but instead they're just using it to kind of pump out propaganda about their personal preferences, um, hoping that they can change minds. And it's it, it's really annoying to me to see people abuse their platforms that way. So that's interesting. So you really don't think it's that much. I mean, you, you think it's propaganda, obviously I do mm-hmm. too, but you kind of feel like it's not that effective. <laughs> Uh, it's um, a, a, like like I said, I th- or are you saying it is, but we should wait until later on to respond. To it's that? it's effective in certain circumstances. Like it's you know, if if Bernie were pulling much lower or were having trouble raising funds, then yeah, like a couple of weeks of really bad press might be enough to finish right. him off. Um, but I don't think that that's going to be a problem for him at all right now. Um, I. I don't even think that they're likely to be thinking of it that way either. So, so you think that someone like Sydney Ember or mm-hmm. whomever they just have like she she worked at BlackRock, yeah. and her her father in law was the CEO of mm-hmm. Bain, which is also why I wonder like if it isn't about not wanting to pull down by don't get don't get me wrong like a lot of people really do think that they're going to be able to uh, change these elections and to bring, you know, like that's what third way is doing right now. Yeah. Well, they're, we really, third way, yeah. they're really aggressively uh, working to squash Bernie early on. And the funny thing is, you know, you have like, I know people who work in like, uh, you know, political advertising and opposition and stuff like that. And the whole thing is just a grift what you try to do is you try to get very wealthy donors with kooky ideas about how they think they can manipulate politics. And you oh, tell them, no. yeah, sure, we'll run this uh, attack ad, and this is going to be the one that brings Bernie down, and they'll cut you like a giant six-figure check to do that. But so they, so there's a whole class of sort of high-rolling donors and people like that who really think that they can have like this massive effect on politics, and uh, like 
this early on in the primaries. And there are certain circumstances in which they can, but I think that Third Way is probably at this point wasting its money. How would you describe Third Way, by the way? The Third Way, a centrist Democratic think tank. At Third Way, we believe that Democrats do have the credibility to take on Republicans on national security to win the war on terror. We've been working with a lot of candidates to supply them with new ideas. We've worked with Claire McCaskill in Missouri. And when Democrats are focusing only on things like, you know, Pell Grants, earned income tax credit, raising the minimum wage, you know, all good programs, but still programs that are really for poor people. They're, I, I would just say they're liberals. <laughs> like they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, they, uh, cause, okay, sorry, but Sidney Ember does quote this guy, Jim mm -hmm. Kessler. Third way twice. Guy. Those issues like climate change are important issues for the country and maybe for some voters inside, but we need to do more to attract voters elsewhere. Is there anybody running for DNC chair who you think is able to bring the party back to the center and back to, to your point, speaking to middle America? Look, I think there's several. I mean, Buttigieg is from uh, Indianapolis, or uh, from Indiana, is one of those. Sydney Ember does quote this guy Jim mm -hmm. Kessler. Third way. Twice guy. she has him say that their own health care mm -hmm. plan, you know, because of course Third Way is putting forward a health care plan, um, and their health care plan is just as ambitious. It just doesn't blow up the system. <laughs> Yeah, um, they've been sort of trying to rebrand the the big thing like the uh, Center for American Progress has been doing is trying to rebrand uh, market private health insurance as universal health care, exactly. saying that, right. OK, well, anything that aspires to give universal coverage is universal health care. So, you know, by that definition, the libertarian health care plan is universal health care because they totally right. think, oh, yeah, you know what? If markets are running smoothly like they should be and if we get big government, right. anyone can get it. Everyone yeah. can get it. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, yeah, that's the sort of thing that they're going to be trying to push. And I think they're it seems like they're having some success with getting different candidates to sort of back off on M4A. Right. They are. They really are. I mean, I talked about this with Adam Gaffney and how dishonest this, what a slippery, sneaky term, um, and universal health care. It is also a statement. I mean, it's a sign of just how, just how terrible third way is that think progress, which wants this, you know, fake universal health care that's not really universal health care. They hate, you know, they think that third way is awful. Because third way is they're they're just straight up. All, I mean, they're like unfettered capitalism. Well, they. I mean, it's hard to it, you know. So for one thing, if you ask anybody who works at Think Progress, they'll say, "Oh, but we have yeah. editorial independence from the Center for America." Right. Yeah. And they and remember, like we saw in those um, leaked emails, like yeah. uh, Neera Tandon and the other sort of high level yeah. people at uh, Center for American Progress do regard them as like these left bomb throwers even though they're not oh you mean the people who yeah. right there who are yeah, critical yeah think... but even Judd Legum Judd Legum wrote something about third way and how bad they were this was a, this was in 2013 I think when when third way warned Democrats against going off the following um people like Elizabeth Warren and Bill de Blasio off the populist uh -huh. cliff you know radical populist Bill de Blasio yeah. you <laughs> You have uh, sure you have you know progressive groups that 
rail against their, uh, against centrists and blue dogs and all yeah, that. They've been doing that. Like, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. Daily Kos used to yell about right. Joe Lieberman all the time. They uh, right. hated him. I mean, because there are levels, right, and layers well, of the, it. The, but the bottom line here is that when election time, time comes, it's going to be time to rally around the nominee, and then suddenly you aren't going to be allowed. If Joe Biden gets in with, uh, you know, third way's blessing, then all of the critics – Think Progress is just going to be constantly publishing, sure. you know, like praise of Biden. Yeah, of course, and right. It's just going to become a sort of pen, a de facto appendage of the Biden campaign. Um, so, it, you know, you, you can only take so seriously a lot of liberal criticism of centrists or of third. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I just think that they're actually I mean, third way is like well, they're by it's, it's postpartisan like wall street yeah well that's i mean that's how they position themselves right no i mean postpartisan and bad. Yeah, 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 i mean yeah. they might as well be republicans or, yeah. yeah if you included the financial industry sector people as individuals on your board what percent would be wall street money uh well, the, i mean here's the thing about defining wall street money I mean, uh, as we've said, our major donors on our website, many of them are in the finance sector, they write us personal checks. It, that is the majority of our of our uh, financial support comes from our board of trustees. Is there a ballpark what percent? Uh, you know, I'm not going to get into that. They're, try, they're, they're doing the no labels thing where they say right. um, we're willing to collaborate with Republicans. Third Way just uh, worked for... Oddly enough, nine months uh, on abortion legislation, abortion reduction legislation that united pro-life Democrats and pro-choice Democrats. It, this legislation was stillborn many times. Uh, I could use a zillion abortion analogies on this. The issue of abortion is just a perfect example of why you need a third way. So yeah, they collaborated. Yeah. yeah, Amber had this piece. Bernie Sanders stumbled with black voters in 2016. Can he do better in 2020? Ember wrote this piece like days before he entered the race. Oh, really? That was on February 17th, 2019. He entered the race February 19th, they were, so two days after. They were already doing polls like before he entered the race. We already had a, a decent idea. This, was, this goes back to what I said a couple minutes ago about enthusiasm, where people said that his enthusiasm was dropping between the last primaries and this one but nah he was like his enthusiasm numbers were doing fine and you know so they really won't let that one go no one brings it, up the, it's sorry well it's just bizarre because sanders has been polling very well with um you know with black voters even better with hispanic voters he's been doing yeah, you never. I have. I mean, have you? How have you heard anyone in the media talk about that? I wrote a thing for Jacobin, but very early on, no, nobody ever. No, they they will still casually talk about his struggle with black voters, even though the only candidate who consistently beats him uh, with the black voters is Biden. And in a recent poll, it was just barely. And Sanders can often win with Hispanic voters. What about um? Harris or or um, Booker. Well, they're still dealing. They're dealing with the exact same thing Bernie did in 2016. They have the name recognition problem. So, so the thing to always remember okay, is yeah. that you know Democrats sort of have like baseline polling levels with everyone, and mm -hmm. so the question is never whether like your standard Democrat is going to get a lot of support from Black voters, from women, from poor people, right. Um, right. from and it, it, it's across the board. They will always out 
out poll Republicans. So the only question is like sort of relative favorability, maybe. The more important question is preference because the question is, okay, so yeah, you like Biden and you also like Bernie, but which one are you going to vote for? And so mm-hmm. it's not that interesting to look at like favorability. Like that doesn't, you right. know, um, I think, who was it? Maybe it was Klobuchar had like decent favorability with uh, black voters, but that doesn't tell us much more than, okay, yeah, she's a Democrat. It, it, it his it, across the board, like, I don't really see much indication that Sanders is in trouble or is struggling at all. What I do see is indication that the rest of the field is uh, starting to catch up as their name recognition rises. I think that's that accounts for like 90% of it and doesn't really have that much to do with people like suddenly getting very hyped and excited about like, say, Elizabeth Warren's policy or that kind of thing. No, they were just learning her name and learning who she is. And so that's why... Her uh, And it was always going to be like this. It was always going to be a thing where everybody who is not Bernie or Biden were going to start off low and gradually climb up and up and up. And they're going to give us this narrative of everybody else is catching up. Bernie's in trouble. But the question is, where are their ceilings? Um, And where's Bernie has a very high floor compared with a lot of uh, other candidates. When we talk about polling, sometimes we say that a candidate has a floor, and that means that even when they're doing like poorly, um, they probably aren't going to sink much lower than... So like, for example, Donald Trump, um, he generally, like, or most Republican presidents, their floor is probably like in the 35% range, and there are a bunch of people who will always support them no matter what. Same thing with Bernie Sanders. He has his Bernie bros who are probably giving him at least, I think, like a 15%, maybe 20% floor, um, which it, it probably doesn't matter how poorly he's doing. I think that he can always count on that. Um, and then I don't know how high his ceiling is. I don't think that it has to be that high in a... Uh, feel this crowded it just has to it it just has to get above biden um that's really all that matters with him so yeah the ceiling is you have it's the opposite thing where candidates generally don't pull over a certain amount no matter how good a day they're having or how terribly everybody else has been doing i think that bernie probably has I don't know where his ceiling is, but I know that his floor is high. Yeah. I'm so tired, by the way. I'm so over straight white old men saying they're over straight white old men for president. <laughs> it's like the most, it's like, oh, it's cl- it's so cloying and it's like making my skin crawl. Who was that, it's uh, so performative. CEO who was doing it recently? Roth? Com- well, some guy named Andrew Ferguson just wrote Tyranny of the 70 somethings, the Democratic Party's gerund gerontocracy is holding back the political causes it claims to want to advance what the fuck are you talking about well i mean i think there is there is a certain truth to that the main problem is just that it doesn't really hold with sanders because he's unusual for people his age yeah and guess who's on the guess what image is there of course of course yeah i mean like yeah all those those gosh darn guys in their 70s wanting to run the world as socialists (laughs) 
if I had a penny. Let's talk about that Bernie Sanders should obviously run as a socialist. Oh, yeah. Which you wrote on your website, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah. there's this ongoing controversy over the fact that Bernie Sanders often describes himself as a socialist, uh, even though um, by uh, sort of ordinary international standards, maybe you would call him a social democrat, or by it, sort of in the socialist tradition, the way we think about who is a socialist and who isn't. Uh, Bernie would probably not qualify under some definitions, um, but it, it, like, you know, well, I won't get into sort of the um, philosophical background on that, but no, do it. Let's do it. Well, do it. you have so it, the question is, you know, is is Sweden a socialist country if uh, it, they are if the property is owned like say if huge percentages of private property are owned by the state? Does this make it a socialist country? Uh, I guess if you want to call it that it sort of depends on what your ideas about socialism are to socialism um there are people who call themselves market socialists there are other people who say that oh by definition socialism can't have markets um both of these have a basis in history you do you have a long history of people who have been calling themselves market socialists you also have a long history of the critique of market markets going back to marx um and sort of as a guy with a background in linguistics i'm not really that interested in those definitions i'm just i'm more interested in what people like what the public thinks a socialist is, uh, what the popular definition of a socialist is. And it's pretty clear, like if you look at the polling, that people say, oh, well, a socialist is somebody who supports universal health care and supports free tuition. And, you know, like if you ask them what are indispensable parts of socialism, they'll say stuff like that. Are they wrong in a historical sense or in a theoretical sense? Yeah, I think they're wrong. The question is, like, does it matter in the sense that, like, should we therefore then be saying to Bernie Sanders, stop calling yourself a socialist? Does it matter? Who, who matters here? Like the people or the guys who wrote books about this like 50 years ago or whatever? Mm -hmm. um, I don't really, I guess my take on this is I don't understand the harm that is done by him calling himself what most people say is a socialist, even if it doesn't line up with the Marxist tradition or whatever. Right. And I say that completely wanting Sanders to be pushed further and further sure. to the left and to align, but I don't really understand like the state it, it feels like kind of just a gotcha that you know i understand sanders better or i understand socialism better than bernie right. sanders does and better than a lot of his supporters do because i get this point of marxist critique that disqualifies him as a socialist right. so right. people want to make a very big deal out of that i'm not sure why i don't know what it accomplishes um and 
you know, there are also other lines of criticism that, well, he shouldn't call himself a socialist because socialism is unpopular in the U.S. That's basically true, but it's also true that, number one, it doesn't seem to actually be hurting Sanders' numbers. He still does fine against Trump. Um, And it's also just a matter of, you know, one of the reasons that people like Bernie is that he's very sincere and earnest and he tells unpopular truths and he's willing people find him credible because of that. So I think that he's he would be throwing away a really big advantage that he has with the voters if he's like, I don't even understand what they're asking. Should he start lying and say, no, actually, I'm a capitalist or should he give a big speech where he says, I called myself a socialist, but technically I'm actually a social Democrat and allow me to explain to you what the differences are. Nobody's going to care. Like, right. Yeah, I agree. His shtick, mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't just defend anything he does. And part of the reason that this is that he is right to keep calling himself that is because people like that about him, that he doesn't flip-flop on things. Yeah. Whatever fear that people have. Um, I mean, there are people who I think hate, don't know what socialism is, think it's bad, but also like Bernie because he won't change the label on that. And would yeah, like, dislike Bernie if he did do that. I do know, like, I know um, right-wing people who absolutely detest socialism, but they will actually, like, if you talk to them, they will actually say, yeah, I respect that about Bernie. And that's not to say that he should do this because he's going to win right people off of respect. No, of course not. But it's just... Carl and Katie's respectability politics, 2.0. Yeah, Yeah. that's just an indicator of how authentic. But yeah, Yeah. so the bottom line is the the debate seems kind of academic to me, and I don't understand the electoral logic of, or the socialist logic of, okay, how is this bad for socialism? Like, what bad thing does it do for socialism for him to use the popular definition instead of the historical or the theoretical definition? Like, how does this, I, because I'm a socialist, I think that our progress comes from the contradictions of capitalism catching up with themselves and the material progress of history working itself out, not from whether Bernie Sanders calls himself (laughs) a socialist or a social Democrat. Like, that seems like really small potatoes that isn't going to matter in the scheme of things. But I want to make sure that you are aware of this because um, mm-hmm. I, I I know you like uh, from a New York Times piece, of course, about mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders when he made his speech. Ember had this piece. She got a bunch of quotes from people who don't like Sanders, mm-hmm. one of whom is this woman named Marianne Marsh, a Democratic strategist in Boston who worked for Senators, who worked for Sanders, John Kerry and Edwards M. Kennedy. And she said, most Democrats running don't subscribe to Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism and his economic policies. Ultimately, Bernie Sanders giving this speech will appeal to his base and no one else. And it gives fodder to Trump and the Republicans. Yeah. And this woman, by the way, they, she doesn't put it in there, but she's um, a principal at the Dewey Group, mm-hmm. which, like, is, you know, she represents Fortune 500 companies. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not surprising that somebody like that would have that kind of yeah. take on socialism. I think it's very funny that that's, yeah, that she went to her for that, yeah. But to bring it back to what I said earlier, especially this early in the primaries, it, it his speech isn't going to change anything about um, in the long term. It was, it was a good marker for him to put down and 
Um, it, I, I think it was interesting and I like the speech, uh, but I just don't understand why anybody would care about that. Yeah. Um, and so you think that um, Bernie can beat Biden potentially? I think that what has to happen is that the primaries have to get competitive enough uh, with everybody else trying to bring Biden down too that eventually he sinks low enough that he's within Bernie's reach. Or for just some something crazy, some dramatic twist to happen where for some reason either Bernie's numbers jump up or Biden's drops. Um, but if things stay the way that they are, Biden's just going to win by default. So something has to change. People have to do something. Doesn't that then in some ways actually make sense that um, people do want to avoid um, attacking Biden? Because if you're like a Kamala Harris, right, and all these people who are these kind of mainstream Dems, right, and you are on the side of Wall Street, um, don't you want to make sure that Sanders doesn't win? Like, I could imagine people, like, getting together and saying, you know, let's make sure that Sanders doesn't win, and then you can get the nomination. Yeah, so I, I guess I would say that I can certainly see them not wanting Sanders to win and preferring Biden, but I also do not think that they are have the discipline to actually, like, cleverly... Um, I mean, it, to, to cleverly drop out so that Biden can win or something like that. I think that they not drop out want, maybe not run that hard against him, but yeah, but I think that they want, I think they probably want to win more than they want Sanders to lose would be the thing. I think they definitely, if, if you rank, if they rank their priorities, it would be first priority. They win second priority. Uh, Sanders loses and then third priority Biden wins. So the way that that logic, it's exactly what happened in 2016 with the Republicans where everybody understood very quickly that for Trump to be beaten, everybody needed to rally behind one of the opponents. When Scott Walker dropped out, he said that. He said to everybody else, we need to stop Trump, and this means rallying behind an opposition right. figure. So everybody understood the way the game was playing out at that point, that you needed to rally behind somebody, but nobody was willing to do it because everybody was in it for themselves. And right. I think that that exact same logic is going to play out here to Bernie's advantage, where if they were being smart and disciplined, then yeah, they would, you would see some tactical dropouts and stuff like that. But I don't think that they're going to do that because I think they're in it for themselves. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Good talking to you, Katie. Yeah, you too. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Halper Show. Please rate and review us on iTunes. You can support us and have access to bonus episodes and extended interviews at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You can find Carl Bayer at his website, carlbayer.com. That's C-A-R-L-B-E-I-J-E-R.com. You can find him on Twitter at Carl Bayer. You can find the People's Policy Project at peoplespolicyproject.org. You can find them on Twitter at pplpolicyproject.org. You can find me on Twitter at letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And don't forget to look for my piece at FAIR, that's FAIR.org, about New York Times bias against Bernie Sanders. 
The Katie Halper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our producer is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. My friends, that is why I call myself a democratic socialist. At its core is a deep and abiding faith in the American people to peacefully and democratically enact the transformative change that will create shared prosperity, social equality, and true freedom for all. Thank you very much.